everybody. It's me, Matt Timmy. It's me, Ben. And I wanted to do a quick little podcast here about CIT training. Sounds good. And so I wanted to ask you, what mm-hmm. do you think is there or is there not a difference between CIT when people refer to crisis intervention training mm-hmm. or crisis intervention team training? Well, I think the most noticeable difference is that the word team is in one of those. <laughs> but do you think there's a difference? I if someone's looking at training courses, I, I honestly don't know the difference. So, I mean, I think this comes up a lot. I know it's a pet peeve to me. And I know this has come up it with other is. people. Because, you know, there's crisis intervention training that I think anyone can get. And a lot of it is like communication skills. And it's very similar to crisis intervention team training. Mm-hmm. I just, the core concepts of it are slightly different. So, what crisis intervention training, I feel like seeing different places that have it. It is more of like just straight lecture on de-escalation skills or mental health. And I feel like whenever places have crisis intervention team training, it's more program specific. So you'll have like members of the community presenting. So they look at it as a team approach to the training. I don't know if that makes any sense. So would that be CITT training? It would just be CIT training. You're saying crisis intervention team training. Yeah. Those are two T's. It would just be CIT training. Oh, right. But when people say CIT training, then they say it's crisis intervention training training. makes absolutely no <laughs> sense, and that happens all the time. Huh. Yeah. I, I, uh, the second one, the team training, that sounds like what we do here. Right. We do. But before, it used to just be crisis intervention training, and that's still happening in our state. Oh, so other agencies are still using that. Right. So it's just... I mean, other places sell that training. It's crisis intervention training. But you're and, saying it's more like just a presentation about mostly de-escalation. And I mean, I think it's very. I think they're very similar, both sides. But it could be like the objectives on them. One is just strictly, it's just, you know, anyone can teach it or some places teaching it. Mm-hmm. And the other one is you're trying to bring the community together to, to present topics and raise awareness. Okay. I think one, two, at least for us and a lot of uh, CIT programs that do training, it's resource-based. Well, the other one doesn't really cover much resources. Hmm. I know you've been to both. Have I'm I? pretty sure. So my original CIT training you're saying was just crisis intervention training. Right. Right. Which is still done. I can't remember whether there was like outside presenters that came to that. I think there was. I don't know. Hmm. But when you see the term, let's say literature or the news, do you just think of it as... That just means 40 yeah, hours of honestly, training. Honestly, I just thought that like whenever I see it, I was like, okay, that's what we do. That's yeah. the training we put on. I always wonder how people take it. Yeah. Because I know I'm very particular on if it's the CIT program. So to me, it's a different uh, objective attitude of why you're putting on the training versus just, hey, we do de-escalation training. Right. And to me, I guess I look at it differently, but maybe I'm just being too picky. Maybe. I think that's possible. <laughs> But I, I will say that I, I definitely see the merits in both those trainings. I think right. both of them are are good and both of them are useful. But if you could include the community, I think that would be a little bit more helpful. Now, how about if you hear CIT training, do you think that should be specific to a time length? Like when you hear it, what do you think CIT is? Do you think that's like any type of training that's hit mental health? or? Yeah, so I, I've seen ours is obviously 40 hours. But I've also seen different agencies do 16 hours, 20 hours, 24 hours. 
Um, so I guess it's, it's just it should be based on the needs of your agency. Right. So I think a needs assessment is appropriate to do before you start it, and that will have help you get a better understanding of how long your training needs yeah. to be. I just think it's so unique when, when people – I know here locally I feel like – like officers or the public will say, oh, that's CIT class, or there's a CIT course, mm-hmm. when they're just referring to anything that's mental health right. or de-escalation. Yeah, they do Like, do, no, they do you know, use that. Yeah. it's like, hey, yeah. we're going to do a block on autism. Oh, it's a CIT class. No, it's just a, <laughs> we're, we're teaching a class on autism. You know, so they use that. So I think it could be very confusing to people yeah. when they hear that, like, what is CIT? And I think of true CIT as a 40-hour block. Right. But you're right, it, it varies. Yeah. Hey, what about this? So I was recently doing some research to look at different programs around the country. And so we do 40 hours here locally. Right. And, and that's kind of, I guess, the gold standard. I'm doing quote marks here. And we do that for five, eight-hour days. Right. So there's a lot of places that do it in four, 10-hour days. That sounds way awesome. Do I was going to ask, do you think having 10 hours of straight training is doable as a student? Yeah, I do. Do you think that's better than eight hours? I don't know. To me, that seems like a long time. Well, I, I'm biased uh, uh, because I will admit that four tens is like my favorite schedule I've ever worked. That's true. So, it's been my favorite. But too. to be fair, I haven't done much training 10-hour days except in the military. Um, so I don't know. It may be too long to keep people's attention, to keep them you know, focused and occupied. It, m- it might just be too long. That would be my concern. Yeah. Because 10 hours, that's a long time to be in a classroom. I mean, and, and it's probably very difficult on the instructors as well. Because, you know, students get breaks. Instructors usually don't get that many breaks. You're just preparing for the next class and going over your curriculum. And that's a good you don't, point. You don't get a lot of breaks as the instructors. And you're, typically, you're there early and after. So right. that's probably like 12-hour days right. almost, if not longer. Yeah. But you get Fridays off. I don't Three know. Day, day what if they were Tuesday through Friday? Who would do that? I'm just saying. You never know. <laughs> what it kind of monster would do that? What if it was Friday through Monday? Friday through Monday. Yeah. I would I would quit that department and go somewhere where their schedule I'm, makes sense. I'm sure because when I saw that, I was like, oh, this is a four-day class. Mm-hmm. So that's where they're doing four days. I thought it was like a 32-hour course. And then I was like, why are they saying it's 40 hours? It's four days. And I'm like, oh, they're doing 10-hour days. Yeah, they probably, I'm sure it's some like con- like contract with those officers. Right. Like, or maybe they're already on that schedule, so right. they just keep them on it. I'm not sure. But, yeah, it would be interesting to see if, if we could do that. I've always uh, – that's always surprised me. You know, there's so many different schedules, but trainings always seems to be Monday through Friday. Yeah. And I wonder if there's a reason or if it would be beneficial for training to be – Random, like so, it could be on the weekend. Not only is it only Monday through Friday, it's only during traditional business hours, right? Which doesn't work well for graveyard officers, yeah. graveyard people. And, it's just uh, one random week you're on day shift, right? And you have to and go, you have to wake up, and you're just dead tired. And and the way that it works, because Friday evening is typically Saturday. So if you right. work Saturday and you were in class all day Friday, you go in that night to oh, work. Yeah. Uh, having worked graveyard for the majority of my career, I mean the trainings. I was always just, you know, are there not enough resources to have this during graveyard hours or, or you know, it's what what's the problem? And I think a lot of times it is the resources. You just right. don't have the resources to put on, you know, a day shift class, a swing shift class and a graveyard class. Right. For most agencies. Right. I think, you know, I've heard things like uh, NYPD has all shifts covered, but I mean, they're like a small army. 
Yeah, they have. They're huge. Well, they have 90, 100 officers at least. 90 million officers. <laughs> no. <laughs> They're taking over the world, okay? <laughs> I don't know if you heard about this. But yeah, they, they have tons. Yeah. So what, what is your take about these trainings being community? So like having members of the community teaching law enforcement. That's or awesome. teaching it. Like if they're uh, if they're a, a SME, a subject matter expert in whatever they're teaching, I think it's it's so cool to incorporate them in part of police training. Have you ever seen any downsides to it? Yeah, um, sometimes you know um, civilians don't. I don't. I don't know how to quite word it, but they don't connect with officers. You know, just on a vocabulary level. Right. Like we've had doctors come in and they're talking talking very doctory right and you're just going to go over officers heads right and, they're very and, academic and right. literature and fancy and, words and if you're not used to teaching officers we don't make great audience members right that's true we we just kind of sit there deadpan in our face i mean we're paying attention we're learning but it's not the typical audience that you would get if you're teaching outside of law enforcement right so so I, how do you correct that so what we do is we you know kind of give our presenters civilian presenters especially if it's their first time a heads up on what to expect right we coach um, them right maybe things not to say things that will help them connect with the officers you know don't be don't be discouraged if it seems like people aren't participating they they trust what you say right and i think sometimes you know civilians may come in with the idea that well, you know what what do i have to teach officers mm-hmm. and it, you know officers if they if they believe you're an expert in that particular area they they want your information they want right. to do better at their job so and we co-teach all yeah. of our courses and so i i can't stress that enough if you guys have an outside presenter one have a relationship with them like build that rapport and coach them but be there even if they're teaching the majority interject every now and then and say oh what they're saying this is how you might app, like apply that to a right. call that's a great or point. like this is what they're saying you know oh yeah. you see it like this and the uh terms are different yeah sometimes so, you just have to translate in the yeah. car like I always think, um, you know, whatever you call like your mental health provider. Mm-hmm. So they use one term and we use a different right. term in law yeah. enforcement. You know, we might just say the hospital or the right. mental hospital or whatever. But that they'll use the actual term for their facility, which we may not actually be aware of. Right. So that can be hard. And I know a lot of times we've had stuff where we were worried about people's personal agendas. Yeah. So like they really want to get involved because... You know, they might believe that there's an increase or law enforcement's shooting people right, with yeah. mental illness. And so they come across and their whole point is like, don't shoot people for this or something. So how would you correct that or catch that? So, I mean, if you can talk to them about what they're going to be teaching and maybe get a, get a hold of them before that, you might see it turn up there. And then you just have to coach them like that's not really going to go over well with officers. If it happens during the class, I mean, it, that's tough. I mean, right. you don't want to interrupt them, but, you know, it, you'd have to talk to them afterwards. Or if it gets too bad, you maybe have to just interrupt them and say, hey. Right. And so if you're having outside presenters, one, like you just said, I would really recommend, like, reviewing their material beforehand. Right. Or if it's your own course, write the curriculum. Yeah. You know, get feedback from the community, but, you know, have your objectives laid out. And I think that's one thing I noticed with CIT programs just across the nation it's like oh we need a class on you know suicide so you just ask somebody hey come teach you about suicide right. that's just very broad have at least some objectives so then you can at least coach that instructor right. like hey i know you're wanting to talk about you know use of force but that's not the the part here we really right. need to cover you know 
proper response to someone who's in a suicide crisis and yeah. what are the resources and that can help yeah and and i know that bringing civilians into traditional law enforcement training is still kind of almost taboo in law enforcement it is but i will say that for our experience we do reviews at the end of every class and our civilian presenters get great reviews and the true. officers really like them so if you're on the fence i mean take precautions vet them and and you know talk to them but it can have a, a great effect on your guys' training. It really can. Um, it, it looks good to the community. You get more buy-in, too. And yeah. so people are backing officers more because a lot of it's just a misunderstanding. Right. You know, if they're like, oh, you're teaching cops to hurt people, it's like, well, come and take our class. You'll right. see we're not doing that. Or help us teach it. You know, what are you seeing that's not working? But I can't stress, like, it, I do believe it should be co-taught. Yeah. Because I notice we get worse reviews if it's just uh, civilian teaching. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, but it's not translated. Right. And two, I mean, people don't like to feel like they're idiots. Yeah. So if someone's using like a a medical jargon or literature jargon and no one's correcting them, they're not going to feel comfortable raise their hand in a classroom and be like, I have no clue what you're saying. Right. You know, you'll feel like an idiot. Some people do, but it's not that common. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know if I would. I would just pretend like I knew exactly what they're talking about. (laughs) Right. I mean, you would. You'd just be Googling it. Yeah. You know, and I don't know what made me just think of that. I guess just saying Googling. But what is your take, and this is just random, I mean, we're kind of going off topic now, but with students having laptops, computers, and phones out? Awesome. You think it should be done, should not be done? Should be done, always. Are you being sarcastic or real right now? I can't tell. No, I mean, like, obviously some people are going to, like, just be playing Clash of Clans on their phone, right? Right. I don't think you can prevent that. That's a Um, good point. But I think if you say, you know, if you want to, if you want to, while we're discussing this, Google what we're talking about and get different points of view on it. I mean, I think that's a great atmosphere. I know that a lot of uh, people that sit in for a class or want to like come and observe certain topics, I always get that. Hey, you know, officers or, you know, your students have their laptops and their phones out. I don't know if I agree with it. And I'm always like, you know, they're always used to having their computer. It's yeah. hard on it. You know, they might have to catch up on a report and I don't want them to not be paying attention because they're listening. Right. And like all shift long, you're listening to your radio, you're on your computer, and you're having to, to listen to everything. Yeah. And especially this, this younger generation, I think, you know, they take notes on their computer. They take notes on their phone. They, you know, that's how they work. Right. Um, so I know in, in an academic setting, pretty much everyone in the class has, nowadays has the laptop open. And like I said, some of them are just not paying attention, doing whatever, but some of them are taking notes. And that's the new pen and paper. That's how... You know, people this generation true. take notes. Now, what if someone's listening? Because I'm sure the title of this one's going to be like CIT versus CIT. What's the difference? <laughs> and let's say they're like, oh, I want to take a CIT course. Uh-huh. How would you How would you suggest that one verify a course is valid or accurate or, or well done? Do you I, think there's a way? I don't know. I don't think so, right? Is there like know. a... There's not a governing body. Um. Look at their agency's Facebook page and see what kind of ratings they have. <laughs> <laughs> Look at their Yelp review. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know either. Because I've had people ask before, like, hey, have you heard of this course? I'm like, no. Yeah. I've heard of CIT, but there's not a governing body to say this is CIT, right. if you're going to use that term. I think your best bet is to is, you know find somebody that's taken the class and ask them. Yeah. Hey, what about think- private versus public? I think there's you know good and bad of both. Um, 
I think you can have terrible private ones. You could have good private ones, and the same goes for public ones. It just depends on who you have teaching the class right. and, and the curriculum. You know, it's such a hard one. Yeah, I mean that's a good point to ask people that have already taken it. Right. And most places, if you're asked, "Hey, I'm interested in your course. Can you give me some references or agencies that have taken it?" They should. Any yeah. any reputable one would be like, "Sure, here's yeah. a list of places that." you know, you could reach out to and ask. And I would just definitely, like you were saying, check to see if they're co-teaching it. If the mm-hmm. private one has police officers teaching along with um, private instructors, that's great. That's right. perfect. But if they're private and they're staying without officers, I mean, officers are obviously some subject matter experts in crisis intervention. So I think at some point they need to include law enforcement, even if they're a private entity. Yeah. Now, what if what if someone was wanting to take a class that you teach? where you work and they said hey can i get a copy of reviews would you give it to them copy of the reviews like what people write about us like hey i'm interested in your course could i get can i see the reviews students give you sure no 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 hesitation yeah and like schedule like hey can i see schedule your classes yeah i mean if they asked for my curriculum i'd give it to them like i mean i I think this is valid you know i mean we're a public entity we're the police department so if anybody wants to see what we're teaching, I have no problem giving it to them. Yeah. Or if another agency asks because they want to teach it, I have no problem giving them a curriculum for that either. It's just I, you know, I think that this information should really be demonopolized. Right. It's a benefit of the community. The become more people, a demon? Is that what you just said? Yeah, become a demon, but also but, not charge for it. Okay. <laughs> it's a kind of a dual meaning <laughs> of that word. Become a demon for free. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm 100% on... Uh, demonopolizing knowledge yeah that's why i was a huge fan of UNM's project echo when i found it and that's what we did cit echo off of yeah it's a great it's a great project you just spread the stuff mm-hmm. um i think that's a great point so if you are looking for it you can ask yeah. i don't think it i don't think that would be rare or odd I don't if you were so, to yeah. reach out even if it's a private agency and say hey i'm interested in this course can i get a copy of your last reviews from the last right. one um and look at it hopefully i mean no matter what if they're getting full class sizes Someone's not going to enjoy something. Yeah. I think that's just a given. Right. Um, so you should still see some review that looks bad. Right, yeah. So if all of a sudden they're only sending you five reviews and they're all excellent, that's you know, take, yeah, take that with a grain of salt. But right. if someone's just like, sure, and they send you all of them, you know, if they're being transparent, I think every class has its own theme. Right. So sometimes it's like, you know, the students create a theme and they really like it. They work together. Some classes... Like you're saying, it could be shift work. You might have a class full of graveyard officers that are just exhausted. Yeah. You know, you might get a little less feedback or someone might be mandated to a class. Sure. And so they're viewing everything negative. So you might see that in, in some reviews, like we shouldn't have this training. Yeah. Or, Why am I being told about this? But I think it's a good point. Yeah, if someone was to ask, you would give it to them. Sure. I couldn't see anywhere else not doing it. I yeah. know some places will say their stuff is proprietary right, or copyrighted. Yeah. So if you're looking for curriculum, they may not. But the schedule or like a syllabus, like this is what we'll cover, yeah. they should give you. And if they won't give you the curriculum, we will. So just yeah. email us. <laughs> right. I mean, that's a good point on it. But yeah, CIT versus CIT. I don't, Interesting stuff. Yeah. I don't know if, if, if it's easy to tell. I don't think so. It's kind of a gray area, huh? Yeah. But if you guys have any questions about law enforcement or CIT or, you know, mental health, by all means, send it to ask at gocit.org, and we'll cover that on one of the Ask a Docs, Ask Cops. But uh, thanks, guys, for listening. Thanks, guys. We are lucky to have Dr. Martin presenting.
on her subject today. I'm going to try to move it on this computer because I'm not trusting the other live computer for that. Unless you can get it going, Jen. And I know after the presentation, we have three cases if we can get to them. I know that uh, I think Dave has a case. State police have a case. And then if we have another one, we'll probably have to push that one over until next week um, from Lawrence on that. Hey, then this is working. So on that, Dr. Martin. Hi, everybody. So I'm Nancy Martin. I'm the medical director of PES. I just took over from Dr. Kofaja um, in August. And Matt asked me to speak on um, something spooky today. And so I chose this topic, not because it's spooky, spooky to us, but more you can imagine if it would be pretty spooky to experience for people who have delusions, hallucinations, and illusions. So we're going to go ahead and... <clears throat> cover those. So the objectives today is that we're going to describe the differences between delusions, illusions, and hallucinations. And I have a number of um, cases that I'm going to tell you about that will highlight these differences. Um, we're also going to discuss the nuances of delusional thought because they can be extensive. And then trying to understand the cultural and regional differences between delusional content, which I find personally very interesting. Please interrupt me at any time, though, if you do have questions. That's just the content we're going through. Okay, so let's get right to it. So we're going to start with delusions. I think the majority of the topic is going to be on this because um, I find it really extensive and really fascinating what um, people can come up with. But So the definition of a delusion is it's a disturbance of the content of thought. So we talk about these, you know, in psychiatry, thought content differences or, or issues. And so delusion falls under that category. Um, it's a fixed false belief that's based on incorrect inference about an external reality. And it's firmly held despite what almost everyone else believes. And also in the face of, you know, irrefutable or obvious proof of evidence to the contrary. Uh, so people can have bizarre beliefs that don't fit under this delusional, you know, uh, thought system. Um, and you tend to think about this being really culturally, culturally related as well. So, um, for instance, you know, the belief in a God isn't necessarily a delusion because multiple people share that belief. Now, if one person holds a belief that, you know, their plant is a God, that's a little bit different. Okay, so there are nuances to that, but this is what specifically makes something a delusion. In psychiatry, we talk about these being mood congruent or mood incongruent, meaning like, does that fit with how they're presenting? Um, is the person bothered by it? Um, and the way that we kind of figure all this out is we explore the content of the, the, the delusional system to evaluate that organization and then the patient's conviction of its own validity, okay? And so delusional conviction really can, can, can you know, occur on this continuum, and it can sometimes, you can figure out how delusional or how much somebody's delusional content is um, impacting them based on their behavior with it, Okay. Delusions can be bizarre, non-bizarre, meaning that somebody can think that, you know, um, aliens are infesting their GI system, or it can be something like, you know, this guy that I work with is in love with me. So that's what we mean with bizarre, non-bizarre. And then we talk about all of these themes, and we try to categorize things, and most of medicine we do this, but <clears throat> try to categorize these delusional uh, thought contents. And so um, very typical or persecutory or paranoid, I'm sure you guys run into that a lot. Grandiose or this insult, like inflated sense of self. Um, jealous or somatic. Jealous being more towards um, 
a lot of times with older patients who are experiencing major neurocognitive issues can tend to start believing that a spouse or a loved one is, you know, um, engaged in another relationship with somebody else. And that's a jealous delusion. Somatic delusions, um, there's some overlap with this and hallucinations. Um, and we'll get to that. But somatic basically means something involving the body. So like a delusion of being pregnant or a delusion of having, you know, aliens in your GI system, like I said earlier. Guilty, nihilistic, and erotic are typically ones that we don't see as often presenting um, to the PES setting or that you guys might run into. It might be these firm-held beliefs that other people have. Okay, so that's just the main categories of what delusional thoughts are. There's also this concept of ideas of reference or ideas of influence, and we call that IOR or IOI in our documentation. And that's basically that the, there's a false belief that behavior of others refers to oneself or that events, objects, or other people have some particular or unusual significance to them. So reference is basically saying like um, the television or radio or internet or some external force has a message for the patient, whereas the influence is that some person or force is um, controlling some aspect of the person's behavior. Okay. You probably hear us say that sometimes. Um, patients with delusional systems um, oftentimes have them for the entirety of their life, and they're used to having these beliefs dismissed or belittled by friends, family, and general society. So they're on guard from, for similar reactions from others, especially when you're encountering them in the field. You know, people are somewhat reluctant to talk about it because they don't know what's going to happen. Um, but there is a way that you can question delusions without really you know, revealing belief or disbelief, and you certainly want to be careful of that. Um, either making them feel belittled, but then also trying to, you don't ever want to buy into their delusional system or let them, you know, because that can be dangerous in and of itself. So there are ways to ask about it without staying neutral. And what I found is that patients tend to speak more freely about their delusional content when they're asked about the emotion that accompanies it rather than the belief itself. So saying something to somebody like, wow, it must be really scary that you think that somebody's following you or um, you know, something like concentrating on how it makes them feel rather than the thought itself. Um, because again, they're on kind of on guard with that. So we have a couple of case examples. I do want to preface all of this with that. There's a number of photographs and there's some artistic work that patients have shared with me and they all have given permission for it, but please don't reproduce these. <clears throat> so um, this first case was a 56-year-old African-American male that I worked with in Atlanta. And I'm sorry, the quality of this isn't very good. This was one of four pieces of paper he drew for me overnight when he was on the inpatient unit. So this is a 54-year-old black male who had been um, in the Vietnam War. I believe he was a pilot. He was, he was, he did something with them, with a helicopter, I believe. And he had developed a psychotic illness during his time um, spent in the military. Ended up diagnosed with schizophrenia and did quite well. <clears throat> um, you know, in his lifetime, he was able to obtain a degree in botany, and that became a really um, this firm, fixated belief, just delusional, um, delusional belief system for him. And when he would get really ill, um, you know, he would decompensate such that he would he would steal plants and animals from people as part of this delusional content. But at baseline, he was a really interesting very well knowledge, you know, he had a lot of knowledge about botany and um, flora and fauna. What was interesting about him, and he had frequent interactions with police there in Atlanta because he had two trailers. One was stuffed full of animals or the you know, skins of animals, and then the other was stuffed full of 
um, different various types of plants. And so this was a drawing he did for me trying to explain the water system to me in Atlanta. And, and, and a whole lot of this doesn't make sense. You could probably make out some things. There's a DNA double helix strand at the top. Um, there's some other, there's like a couple of the Latin names of um, the binomial system of nomenclature for some of the plants that he liked. Um, but it, I mean, if you can just imagine looking at this drawing and looking how things are related uh, uh, for him in his mind, how confusing all of this must feel. Um, and so in how frightening some people might find it that he has these two trailers just stuffed full of things. Right. But um, one of the most difficult things about residency for me was realizing that people have the ability legally to be like this, to have this delusional content and belief system and not be a danger to themselves. It's bizarre. It's it's confusing. It looks exhausting to me. But that he, you know, in in in, in the majority of his life, he was not a danger to himself or others because of this belief system. Here's another one. This was a younger black female that I saw in Atlanta as well, who was convinced that she um, was being changed into an, an alien. She believed her eyes were turning yellow and that she was every once in a while abducted. Um, this pig figure is really interesting to me and it came up in a lot of her drawings along with the bows that you can see at the bottom. So some psychologists would have a lot of fun with this, but you know, she, she had this belief that she was being changed in some way by aliens. <clears throat> this is from a man locally that you all have probably interacted with in the past. Um, he is an, a young white male um, who has a very, very bad treatment-resistant psychotic illness. Um, who, unfortunately, with you know Halloween and Halloween decorations around the mall, has started to fixate on the Joker. He saw he went to Hot Topic around the mall and saw a full-size picture of the Joker, and this started to become incorporated into his delusional thoughts. So at baseline, he, he comes from a very religious family and um, his ability to study and learn and, and recite the Bible had, had been something as a child that he was pressured with, with his family. Um, and so, you know, the religious content of his delusional system is very prominent. Um, and so he, he always, he's always feeling that there's this supernatural, either God-like quality or the power of the you know the universe and the planets they have they have this you know impact on him but you know in the last month or two he's he's incorporated the joker into that and so he says that if you know and some of the other um, superman type of characters and um so he, he said to me the last time he came into pes if superman don't kill the joker then god will but what was concerning about his presentation at the time is he said, well, maybe I should become the Joker of Albuquerque and kill people. And so you can see how somebody can have this delusional system that at baseline is bizarre and strange, but really not all that threatening. And how something small, like a Halloween decoration at a mall, might you know, um, impact that and change that at, at some level as well. Okay. So we've talked about, you know, three cases of patients who've had psychotic illness, and this is a version of psychosis as well. This is a, a longer, this is a, a, um, going to be a couple slides in length um, about something that's very difficult to treat. So those patients that we just went over, they had been in a hospital, they had gone to a psychiatrist. In this case, these, this is to highlight that these delusional content or belief systems can exist outside of a psychiatrist ever knowing a patient as well. So this... <clears throat> It's a picture um, 
of um, a plastic bag uh, filled with debris that this woman presented to her dermatologist. She's a 54-year-old Caucasian female. And she was referred from her primary care doctor with complaint of bugs in her skin she had been experiencing for the last 18 months. So she brings in this plastic bag filled with this um, you know, debris, and it's looked at under the microscope, and it basically just, just shows that it's inorganic, but there's no parasites, no feces, no eggs, no evidence that there's a bug um, or parasite. So she had self-treated her skin with applications of boric acid, mouthwash, bleach. She had done just about everything to try and get this stuff off of her. Um, <clears throat> none of it helped, obviously. So this is a picture of her abdomen. Um, the one on the far left is her is her abdomen. Um, just, you can see a number of things that are both normal and abnormal. So you see stretch marks or striae is what we call them in medicine. But then a number of you know excoriations, circular and linear. And then she's got the right. You got you can see the right buttock and the left buttock. What's what's interesting and what you can note, maybe not the best in these pictures, is that the middle of her back, the center area where her hands can't reach, is spared. So this woman <clears throat> believed she was infected with parasites, um, and this is something called delusions of parasitosis or Ekbom syndrome, and it's really, really difficult to treat because people do not believe they have a thought content issue. They believe that they're infested with parasites. Luckily, she was, with the help of her dermatologist and primary care doctor, was able to start an antipsychotic medication, and within two months, that's what her abdomen looked like. Sorry, four months. <laughs> All right, so I have a graphic image of this. If you have problems with, you know, um, um, medical pictures, this is a, this is a picture of a, a more severe case of this uh, delusions of parasitosis. So if you have a problem, please do look away. It's, um, you know, it's not it's not it's not wonderful. Um, so this is a picture of the same thing. <laughs> And, and you can see the level of um, self-harm somebody would go to around this delusional you know, belief system. This person held firm to the idea that they were infected and actually you know, completely removed the top layers of their skin and hair because of it. Okay. Yes, Matt. <laughs> Matt and Avery, you have a question. When you see a patient that has a delusion like this and they're actually either removing body parts or to this extreme, is their pain tolerance lowered because of the delusion or because I don't think I would be able to, to go through that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an excellent question. I don't know if that, that's probably been looked at in the functional MRI studies. I, I don't know the evidence behind that though. I would imagine so. And of course, when you're getting to this level, this is where we talk about the continuum of a, of a delusional belief system where this person's at harm to themselves, right? Like that this person might take out their eye. They've already, already taken off parts of the skin and put themselves at risk for infection um, and a number of other complications. So, but yes, I'd imagine so. That this is just to really illustrate the strength of these belief systems for people. <clears throat> so I polled about, I'm part of this online psychiatry group, and I polled 4,000 psychiatrists about this for you guys. Um, because it is an interesting thing to me, and I'm sure in your experience in the field, you've noticed some really regional or culturally related specific delusions. So anything that you can think of that's weird for people that can become a delusion. Um, but these are the responses that I got. So in Los, Al Los Angeles, obviously, people have a lot of delusions of grandeur related to the film industry or being famous themselves. Um, in Minneapolis, I didn't know that Pillsbury Company 
is based there, but um, it's common for people to develop a delusion around flour that's tainted with something. And one specific, one specific patient had this idea that it was tainted with HIV. And then delusions around the prince, the artist. In Memphis, Tennessee, there's a lot of Elvis delusions, whether somebody is Elvis themselves or a child of Elvis or related to him and coming into a lot of money. For me in my training in Atlanta, it was a lot of famous producers or rappers. So we'd have patients coming in saying that they were Tyler Perry or they knew Tyler Perry or they were Little Wayne and they wanted cough syrup. <clears throat> and then a lot of military experience, there's this kind of persistent recurrent delusion that we see about being implanted with a chip during deployment, during their time in um, the military, any experimentation. And then a lot of people have been, <clears throat> a lot of VA patients I've heard say that they've been given a large amount of you know, substances and LSD seems to be a pretty prominent one that has happened before and then with women and these are just obviously just a few to highlight some specifics but with women the delusion of being pregnant can persist for some people do you have any to add that you guys have seen related to albuquerque gang stalking mm -hmm. what i see most often here can you explain uh sure ben i'm lunges APD. a lot of people um that are having delusions are really slow that i've now with I think they're being stalked by a, a local street gang or like a national gang. Um, it's a very commonly held delusion here in Albuquerque. Mm -hmm. Any others you guys have noticed? Kevin Napoleon, APD. I've had a couple incidences where uh, people claim that they're, I guess, security for the president. That's the only thing, and that's at the airport, that they need to travel to see him or that they're in charge of the nuclear codes for the president. Interesting. Thank you for that. Any others? Corey Ryan with ABD said a lot with government agencies like CIA and FBI. Mm -hmm. Thanks for that, Corey. How about people from else outside the state? When we're in St. Paul, do you guys actually see this Pillsbury stuff in Prince? It's actually in Minneapolis. That's on the other side of the river. So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. 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 them Oops. 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 So a lot of them have actually gone back from smartphones to regular phones, and they still hack into that. Any little thing, it's kind of like a delusion when it comes over the phone. Interesting. So anyone that we see with a flip phone, we should just automatically assume it's mental health. <laughs> Thank you guys for including those. This is just an interest of mine. I think that, um, I mean, it, I imagine this would be really terrifying for people, but then it's also so regional specific, specific at times. So I have a question. This is Matt Tenth APD. Earlier you talked about delusions. You know, they're only delusions if it's not uh, culturally acceptable. Mm -hmm. And so one, I have a question is how many people does it take for it to be acceptable? Such as in New Mexico, we have had a tendency up north and south to have cults. Mm -hmm. And what point is that acceptable or not? And then also here, at least with people that have been psychotic, depending on the area, you know, a lot of them will look at it as 
beliefs of being like possessed or with some of the Native American type of things. Right. Right. So there's this religious cultural aspect to thank you for that question. Man. So there's like religious cultural aspect to things as well. And this is where I think the lines of psychology and psychiatry really blur with, you know, what we as a society and, and, and a human race really think about, because we, you wouldn't want to go as far as saying that like a group of people who are in a cult, although that's weird to you and I, that you wouldn't necessarily call that a delusional system for them. You wouldn't want to treat them with antipsychotics that people have the ability to you know, make these choices for themselves. And yes, it's, you know, some things are a little bit weird to you and I, um, but they might not be weird to this cultural group. Right. So I like, I want to shy away from saying that, you know, like certainly there's cult mentality that can get really dangerous. And, and we'll talk a little bit about this in terms of, some interesting research that's done around Halloween around this idea. Um, but yeah, yeah, if it's a, if it's a, a shared belief system by a number of, of people, either religiously or in a society, it's not really considered delusions. Gotcha. There's also this um, really fancy French term for something we call folie à deux, which is like having the madness of two, where you can find in sometimes there's couples or mother and child or father and child, um, you know, two people or three people, small groups of people who share a delusional content. And that can get very scary and very dangerous, especially if you're considering like a mother and a child, a mother and a minor having a you know belief system. Um, and I think there was a movie that one of the Judd sisters did around this concept where, you know, do you guys remember the name of that? It was actually pretty well done. Um, and it was about, it was about Philea and it was about two people having a delusional um, thought system together, but there was active drug use as well. So does that answer your question? Okay. Other questions? So I'm interested in, in this aspect too, which is delusions in social media and how, um, you know, some, some of our younger generation, um, how, how social media is, may impact this. And we certainly see it, I think, in psychiatry and the units, some of the, you know, younger patients versus older patients in their delusional <coughs> content. Um, and so we think about things like fandoms or groups of people who, you know, follow some pop, pop culture item and how they kind of weave their lives first into the fandom and then into the fiction itself. And that's either shared by others or supported by others and doing the same thing. Um, but then they start, you know, we start seeing a lot of younger people having um, these delusions of starting businesses or social media movements that make them the next billionaire or famous civil rights leader or high powered celebrity. And that they've done that all through social media sites. So I can't tell, tell you how many people in my residency training I met who said that they were the next rapper and that they would actually share things on YouTube or share things on Instagram and they would have some following from it. And they really believed that that meant they were the next, you know, away. So there's this really interesting idea that where there's the blur of obsession behind wanting to be and follow somebody and like have an admiration for a celebrity, but then it turning into a delusion. And so these are so sort of the people that you see who are arrested for stalking a celebrity where it becomes this, you know, and maybe initially it was some obsession with them and then it turned into a delusional system for them about um, how special that person was or that person loving them. <clears throat> Okay. Any questions about delusions? All right. Well, let's get, let's get into hallucinations. So this is different. Um, it might kind of feel similar, but it's, it, it is quite different in psychiatry. Um, hallucinations are, 
our false sensory perceptions that occur in the absence of irrelevant, uh, irrelevant external stimulation, okay? And so we, we categorize these according to your senses. And so when people talk about hearing voices, seeing things, or having a somatic type of feeling, that's different from a delusion which is that fixed false belief. And the, the overlap for me is always with what's the somatic delusion versus what's a somatic hallucination. Um, and that's a little bit difficult. Um, so that, that idea or that concept of, you guys have all felt your stomach rumble, like ha you know, having your, your intestines, the motility of them moving and that sensation that comes along with it. That could get interpret interpreted as, you know, if somebody was delusional, that there being snakes in the belly, right? And so that would still, that would be considered um, a delusion still, whereas the hallucination might be um, this, you know, sorry, I'm sorry, I said the opposite. So that would be a hallucination, a somatic hallucination, um, whereas the delusion is going to be more like a more fixed, um, continuous thing. Okay. Um, so let's just kind of march through these. So auditory and visual are the most common that we see in primary psychotic illnesses. When we start getting to these other three, we start thinking of organic reasons that somebody's having a hallucination. Um, so auditory is obviously this false perception of sound, voices, or music, um, and it's the absence of that sensory input, okay? And that's the most common. And we're going to run through a little bit of what, what is a primary psychotic hallucination versus a substance-induced versus a malingered or a faked um, auditory hallucination. Visual is the false perception of sight. Um, and then tactile, obviously, is the physical experience. Um, I don't tend to, to, you know, hear these a whole lot from primary psychotic illness, illnesses. Um, if we see these a lot with alcohol withdrawal, and we really start to worry about that as a part of something we call delirium tremens when somebody starts to have tactile hallucinations. That's a really dangerous spot for them to be in. Olfactory, or this false perception of smell and odors, is always suggestive of a medical etiology because of where the olfactory nerves lie in the brain. Um, they you typically start to see somebody who has an olfactory perception or a hallucination is having something wrong with their temporal lobe or the part of the brain that's, you know, um, towards the side, either seizures, lesions, or Parkinson's. Okay. Um, and, you know, the description of olfactory hallucinations for me has always been something smelling really foul, like they've never been good, which is unfortunate. And then gustatory or the false perception of, of taste can be common as well, especially in seizures. So people who have a seizure disorder in a pre-ictal or before they have a seizure state can describe this um, like burnt sugar taste or a metallic taste or a salty taste. So those last three really are indicative oftentimes of there being something medically wrong rather than a primary psychotic Okay, so when we ask about auditory hallucinations specifically, we're always asking about volume and clarity of the voices, whether they're continuous or intermittent, whether they're inside or outside the voice, uh, how, the head, the number of voices involved, whether those voices talk to themselves, the gender of the voices, if they have command and uh, quality in nature, meaning like um, do they tell the person to do something, if they're familiar, and then any insight they have into them. Like, yeah, these voices are there all the time, or yeah, I have no idea what these are. So this helps us to kind of understand somebody's, what they're experiencing. But it also helps us to understand the differences between something like primary psychotic auditory hallucinations versus, um, you know, substance-induced or malingered. So people who have primary um, psychosis and they, des they describe auditory hallucinations oftentimes describe those voices being of both sexes, that they're spoken in the person's native language, 
that they're very clear and coherent voices and about 30 to 50% of the time have command type quality. We see this as kind of a, a danger sign when somebody has at baseline hallucinations and then they, be, and they become command in nature. That, that, that tends to be a, a signal to us that there's decompensated psychosis. Um, and that the commands usually match the patient's speech pattern. So like you're not going to have somebody who you know, is very concrete and um, provides one word responses having voices that tell them these complex sentences. Okay. Matching mm -hmm. therapy. You just said that baseline with these uh, auditory hallucinations. Is that just meaning that someone consistently has auditory yes. hallucinations? So depending on their illness, right? Like when I say primary psychosis, I'm talking about a group of diagnostic categories. I'm talking about schizophrenia. I'm talking about brief psychotic disorder. I'm talking about schizophreniform. Um, I'm talking about, you know, schizoaffective. We're talking about all these diagnoses, but I mean that somebody has a primary psychotic illness, meaning that, 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 that psychosis is the most prominent part of their mental health issue. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. And then the commands are not complex in nature, and this is helpful when we're, you know, um, you know with forensic psychiatry and trying to determine this, is somebody feigning these, um, these symptoms, okay? Because they, they, the voices are not going to tell you to, you know, stick your hand in the air and then bend over and touch the floor. They're just not like that. When people describe them who have primary psychotic illness, it's not that way. It often tends to be derogatory in nature or telling them to do one simple task. So with substance-induced auditory hallucinations, there are some nuances. They don't tend to be as clear and coherent, and they'll be described as noises, music, unintelligible voices. It's very uncommon for somebody who has a substance-induced auditory hallucination to act on commands if they're present. They'll describe the voices as being outside of the head rather than coming originating from the inside. And then they feel that the individuals are addressed indirectly, meaning kind of being talked about rather than talked to. Okay? And so reality testing around those voices may or may not be intact, and that really depends if, um, you know, if somebody's actively using or not. With alcohol use specifically, we tend to see um, like some derogatory voices or comments of people's everyday life and spiritual or persecutory content. Um, and then about 40% of them don't accept the voices as real. So somebody just asked, Corey, thanks for the question. Um, the, the voices that are mostly command type, are they bad things? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. And, and that's also something that we're asking. Um, of the patient. So if somebody's having or endorsing command type auditory hallucinations, one, they're not saying they're command type. You have to kind of infer that. Like we say, do the voices ever tell you to do something? And if they say yes, then we say like what? And sometimes they'll be like, oh, to eat a sandwich. And then, you know, sometimes also it's <coughs> to kill people. And so, you know, you we're, we're obviously checking for kind of the safety around that. And then if somebody experiences command type auditory hallucinations to tell them to do bad things, um, we want to ask, what's the likelihood of you acting on them, too? Okay, so we, we kind of ask a number of, of questions around those. Jamie Sipes with uh, St. Paul said that they have a call frequently with a 90-year-old woman who calls about being able to smell peppers, mm. so that she's medically cleared. And I, I will actually say that we've had a lot of follow-ups with elderly when it comes to mm -hmm. uh, hallucinations of smell, but I don't know if it's just because it sticks out, but they're odd and that's why they stick in her head. There's that one woman I went with you who smells blood all the time. Is mm -hmm. that common with elderly? 
I mean, it's really to me indicative of them having some organic etiology behind it. Um, you know, like it, it's not common in a primary psychotic illness for people to tell you that. Um, so it, to me, it would, it would kind of alert me to think maybe we need to do neuroimaging on somebody to make sure that there's not a big mass lesion. Um, you know, with dementia patients, it's kind of, you see that a lot. You do see some olfactory hallucinations. So if we're on a call and, and someone like this one particularly is calling a lot about mm -hmm. these odd smells mm -hmm. and we see them, who is it that we should should give them uh, recommendations to go to? Just their primary care? Mm -hmm. or Yeah, and if they have a psychiatrist, for that to be something, you know, that the psychiatrist can advocate for the person getting any necessary medical workup. And it might be unfounded, but, or it might, it might be, you know, you might not get anything from it, but to me it would warrant if this person is, you know, if this is a new symptom and they're complaining of that specific one, that I would want to do a more extensive medical workup with them. So visual hallucinations, we're always asking about the type um, and then kind of the qualities behind people, so behind the description of what they're seeing. So are people full-sized or small? Are they in black and white? Or are they in color? Do they occur when falling asleep or when they're awake? And that will become important because I'll talk to you in a minute about what we call normal hallucinations and then how fast they develop. Because this really, there's some nuance be between primary psychosis, substance-induced, and then malingered. So I have to say visual hallucinations are just not as common as auditory hallucinations in primary psychosis. And so this does help us. Um, so with visual hallucinations in primary psychosis, people are usually full size. They're usually in color. Opening or closing one's eyes doesn't matter. doesn't make the visual hallucination go away. And they can appear suddenly. Whereas substance-induced, um, and by that, I'm sorry, I probably should have explained that. I mean when somebody is intoxicated or has persistent psychotic symptoms with the absence of drug. Um, which is a you know a terrifying thing, but can happen for people. They're typically less um, well described to so their shadows, flashing lights, moving objects, very vivid colors or shapes, particularly with drugs like LSD or um, you know um, a lot of the the serotonin surge type of medications uh, uh, drugs. Um, there's a vividness of objects, and then there's this um, this concept of either small or really big things. Um, so like the description of the little green men is just not what that doesn't occur in primary psychosis. And so that can that can be helpful too when somebody is malingering symptoms as a way of gaining some other thing, maybe admission to a hospital or um, disability. With malingered hallucinations, typically they're they're very atypical, can't describe them and then they're very vague in nature. Okay, so this group of non-pathologic hallucinations is probably something you have all experienced and wondered, oh my gosh, what does this mean? I hope that I'm not developing schizophrenia. These are all normal hallucinations. So we categorize them. Yes. Just before you move on yeah. to this one, uh, Corey Ryan, the APD, has a question about the uh, substance-induced ones. Can mm -hmm. it also be from That's a great question, yeah. So there are a group of medications, classes of medications that can cause um, disturbances in mood or psychotic thinking, and the one that I we always think about are um, um, our steroid medications. So prednisone is a really good medication for a lot of things, but can make people really, they can make them manic, it can make them depressed, it can make them psychotic. And so yes, there are medications that are prescribed that can cause um, psych psychotic symptoms, but we don't actually call that substance-induced psychosis. Um, so substance-induced would be something like an illicit substance causing psychotic illness. Okay. 
So, um, so yeah, so these non-pathologic hallucinations, we have two categories. They're fun, fancy words. One's called hypnagogic hallucinations, which occur when we're falling asleep. And that's normal. That's part of the brain going from the wake, the wake you know, state to sleeping state. Um, and then hypnopompic hallucinations are when somebody wake up. So hallucinations occurring um, as you're coming out of that dream state and into the awakened state. And those are all non-pathologic hallucinations. But can be weird for people. Have you guys experienced those before? It'd be abnormal if you hadn't. Come talk to me after. <laughs> okay, and so we, we talk about, you know, we talk about um, delusions and hallucinations, and then we kind of get into this area of illusions and, and psychology. Is, this is a really interesting area of psychology, and so we talk about some being pathologic and some being non-pathologic. Um, but the, what makes this different from hallucinations and um, delusions is that this is a perceptual misinterpretation of a real external stimuli. Okay, so there's some external thing that's there and our brain misinterprets it. And so just as we've kind of categorized the rest of these you know, delusions and hallucinations, the same thing for illusions. So there's optical illusions and some people really like these and get behind these and we'll, we'll, I'll show you a couple. But it's that the brain creates a visual interpretation of an object in the environment and then forms, you know, forms a precept of that or an idea of what the brain you know, comes up with. So if there's any gap in that, your brain attempts to fill it, and we'll go over that. So one of them is the bezeled effect, which colors might seem different due to adjacent colors. There's auditory hallucinations and um, or illusions, and this is really interesting. I think this has been studied in a lot of um, um, you know composers, especially Beethoven, seem to have a lot of these, where there's a perception of sound that's not present in the stimulus, that there is a sound stimulus, but what that person hears is not there. So these are called kind of impossible sounds. You can get a PhD in this specific topic when it comes to, I mean, you really can in, 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 in music theory and composition. So I'm not gonna give you a whole lot of examples, but if you wanna like go down into a rabbit hole over this weekend, look at this, it's really cool. And Beethoven seemed to have a lot of these. And then tactile hallucinations, or sorry, illusions. And so that's, the example of that is, um, a phantom limb where there's this perception of pain or other physical sensation um, where a patient has has a, actually had a limb removed, like an arm or leg or a digit, and they still feel a sensation. That's an illusion. Okay, so who knows about the dress? <laughs> yeah, well, what, what color is this, guys? Black. Hashtag blue black, hashtag white gold. So this is, uh, people who don't know about this, this is this, is this like, you know, um, internet sensation back in February of 2015 where a woman in, I think it was in England, posted this. So she was for a wedding. And the, the family was having an argument about this, about what color it was. And within, you know, a couple of days, I think there were 10 million tweets about this. And it became this like, you know, internet sensation. Um, and it's a really great, I, you know, a really great example of what a visual illusion is for our brains. And so there's a number of neuroscientists who've um, commented on this, and it's really, it's a, a great example of how the human brain perceives color and then chromatic adaptation. Um, so I'm going to try my best to explain this, but this is kind of um, a nice way for us to all see what other people might be seeing. When I look at this picture, I see white and gold. But... Like a normal person. <laughs> Yeah, and so that's why it became this internet sensation is that how could you possibly see this other thing? Okay, and so this is this is what other people might be seeing. Um, 
And the way to try to describe this is that there's, um, um, the neuroscientists have, have gone over this, have basically said that, you know, your visual system is looking at something, you're trying to discount what's called the chromatic bias of the daylight access. So either people discount the blue and you see white and gold, or you discount the gold and you see blue and black. Okay, so um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really nice example of a visual illusion for people. Here's another one that's shared a lot. What do you all see here? Duck rabbit. rabbit. No, you can see one. <laughs> what do you see first? What does your brain see first? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and then if you look hard enough, you can oftentimes see the other, right? But that's the idea behind a visual illusion, that one sticks out to you first, and your brain interprets that first. Duck first. So again, if you want to like lose yourself down an internet rabbit hole, just start looking these up. They're pretty fun. It's really interesting, I, you know, the way that our, our, our minds work this way. Okay, and so, you know, again, when Matt asked me to do this lecture, I think the only thing that's spooky about all of this is that I feel... You know, when patients experience these symptoms, you want to, you know, we're doing our best to try and help them to, to understand them, but also to help them live a life with them. And so that's what's spooky about this. But just to say a little spooky words about Halloween, um, that it's a really interesting time for psychologists to study behavior because there's this idea of, you know, costumes and crowds equal anonymity and um, this, you know, de-individuation. And that oftentimes results in antisocial behavior. So you guys are busy, I'm sure, on Halloween. I would love to see your numbers. Um, this psychologist back in the 1970s did a really interesting study around Halloween and candy um, and wanted to research how factors, three factors specifically influence people's and children's, by people he meant children's willingness to steal extra candy. So if I want you to come away with anything from this lecture, it's don't leave candy out for people to take one piece because they won't. So what they did in this study is they identified, they had an identified uh, group or an anonymous condition, then a group size and responsibility. And so they basically had like a, a regular house, but it was set up to be um, observed how many pieces of candy people stole. So if the kids came in as an individual, the, the study participant, the, the organizer would ask them some identifying information like which house do you live in or what's your name? And then others, they would not ask that information. Um, and then sometimes with a group, they would say, you're responsible to make sure that no other children take more than one. Um, and these were the results they got. So basically, as you can see from the graph, that being in a group and being anonymous greatly increased the likelihood that kids would steal extra candy or money. So the kids who were alone and identified stole 7.5% of the time, whereas kids who were anonymous and in a group stole 57.7% of the time. Don't you leave your candy out. Can I get a grant for that research? That was in the 70s, no way. It was just like one. <laughs> So um, that's all I have for you all today. What, what questions have come up or comments? Matt. So mentor therapy, I just had a question about, is there any kind of treatment, medication, or other treatment that actually helps with someone that's experiencing hallucinations and someone that is living with the experience of hallucinations? Well, absolutely. I mean, we like to think so in psychiatry. Yeah, so we've got the group of antipsychotic medications, and we, we classify them according to when they've kind of come out and then some of the side effects that they cause. You hear a lot about first-generation and second-generation antipsychotic medications, and that's the first-line treatment for people who have hallucinations and delusions. Unfortunately, delusional belief systems are really, really hard to target 
Um, and oftentimes medications don't work for that, but um, you know, antipsychotics do work really well to lower intensity of the types of hallucinations people are experiencing. So you'll meet people who have schizophrenia and say that they never can get rid of their hallucinations, but that they can lower them in terms of volume, or they can find other ways of distracting themselves. And they'll know, you know, some people have really good insight in knowing, like, my voices have gotten louder, I need to go to the hospital. Does that answer your question? Yes. That's none of the people we see. <laughs> and then Corey Ryan with AP asked, what about ghost and paranormal? Where does that... It's a whole nother lecture, Corey. I could have, we could have, you know, designed one just on that, but... Um, I, again, but this, I don't want to, like, I want to shy away from this being part of a delusional system for people because as a cultural, you know, as a culture and certainly religious groups and cultural groups can really believe in ghosts and paranormal, um, um, you know, belief systems. I think where you start to get into trouble is how, how that impacts your life. Like if somebody believes in ghosts, but then that, that preoccupies everything about their life where they can no longer hold a job. They can like, they can't have a meaningful relationship with another person, that sort of thing that, that, that might, you know, I see that that's not a really serious question with your LOL at the end. That is a serious question. <laughs> what other questions? Oh, good, oh, good. Well, thank you all for your attention. I appreciate you letting me talk to you today. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. That was really good. Thank you for showing the difference between the substance use, substance-induced one versus mental health. That's the first one I've ever kind of heard it broken down like that. Yeah. Well, we consider both mental health. Right. right? And, and, and I don't want to, like, I don't want to discount that. I'm just going to wave my witchy finger at you. Okay. I don't, <laughs> don't want to discount uh, when somebody is intoxicated with a substance, that that is real for them. And even though that we see it as, like, a very different etiology, of, like, the origination of the symptom is very different, and it might mean very different treatment, that, that that's really that is really, you know, frightening for them and could be potentially dangerous to the public too. So like, although there's this difference, I don't want anybody to, to walk away from the lecture thinking that I'm saying one is more important than the other, you know, that they're both. No, but I think it's something we can use in law enforcement when it comes to the end result of our encounter. Mm -hmm. So if, if we're not sure and there might be a charge, but it is substance use, they might be better served in, you know, criminal justice setting or into some kind of uh, possibly like drug court versus being taken to an emergency center. Mm -hmm. If they're going to get, you know, they don't benefit from inpatient treatment in that setting. Right. And this is kind of a, a topic of debate a lot that we'll have people come into PES who are intoxicated with methamphetamine specifically and who are very agitated and they're usually agitated because they want to leave. And then you run into this, do we medicate this person? Do we force medications on this person who cannot keep their stuff together and probably can't keep their stuff together when they leave PES either and force them to stay? Or do we let them go and hope that they do okay outside? Because once you force medications on somebody through the muscle, you're really, you're like, you, you know, you're, you're basically condemning them to a sentence of 48 hours and four to eight hours in PES. You don't want to let somebody go right after they've given the medication. Um, so that's kind of a constant debate in PES too is, um, can this patient, you know, can they leave here and not hurt themselves or other people? 
So it's a hard, it's a hard question to answer all the time. Kevin wrote this privately. This is actually a good one. So superstitions, how does that fall into the categories of delusions or nothing? Yeah. So, I mean, again, a really good question that you, people will do certain things and they're, they're normally accepted things that we do in our society, like knock on wood. That's a super, that's a super superstitious belief that, you know, if you don't do, if you don't knock on wood or touch wood, as people say it in Britain, that something bad is going to happen to you. So this is again, a continuum that people can experience this and have a normal, healthy, non-pathologic life of having a superstitious thought, um, or it can become part of either a psychotic symptom, psychotic illness, or, um, obsessive compulsive disorder. Superstitious thought occur a lot in obsessive compulsive disorder. And that's when things just get in the way of you having a normal life. So believing that you need to walk, you know, um, a certain way to work, that you need to drive a certain way to work. And then if that, some, some of that gets impacted in some way that you won't, like your day will go poorly. So mainly it's only becomes an illness when it actually affects your job or like not your job, your life. Yes. Because like, like sports, people have tons of superstitions. They're still playing the game, but if you can't do something. I'm wearing my lucky pair of socks because I was going to talk to you guys today. What do they call it in Britain? Touch wood. Don't say that. That's a lawsuit waiting to happen. Yeah. <laughs> Just put that out there. Yeah, that has different connotations in yep. our society. Yeah. Right, Ben? <laughs> you had to learn that the hard way, didn't you? You're <laughs> <laughs> still learning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. Superstitious thoughts are like prevalent in, in sports. In, in the sports world. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Yeah, right? Thank you for that time. You're welcome.